0: This week, we revisit a past episode that's a favorite of ours. So please sit back and enjoy this special best of presentation of Living the Call. And families divide ideologically all the time. And we as believers can't let that happen. And we turn our back on the school of love offered to us in a family. If we allow ideological differences to divide us, and if we seek trying to grow in love and empathy for family members and understanding, understanding them. If all we want to do is win them over to our position and not understand them and not come to empathize with them, we're missing out on what God wants to teach us in that school of love. And we're missing out on the opportunity to come to love the world in a richer way through the school of love that is family.
1: Jason Simon, welcome to the show.
0: Great to be here. This is exciting.
1: What's up, brother? Are you in Wisconsin today?
0: Yeah, beautiful Wisconsin. Very cold, frigid. All the leaves are off the trees. And uh, unfortunately, the snow melted. We had a couple inches of snow before Thanksgiving. That was awesome.
1: Nice. Well, it is very predictably. It's uh, 69 or 70 degrees today and sunny. So very boring boring in L.A. Yeah, very boring.
2: (laughs)
0: I lived in Southern California for a summer and I hated it. There was never any rain.
1: There was no variability. That is true. (laughs) There's been, I was talking to my wife just this morning about the times that it's, because we're from Florida before California and in Florida it rains every day and there are like torrential, you know, there's even hurricanes and stuff, but there's like torrential downpours, not just like drizzle. And we counted like four instances in the last 20 years that we can recall where it had rained like that in Southern California. So it it definitely is. Yeah. yeah, it it can be pretty pretty mundane, but um, but it's still predictably, fun.
0: Perfect. <laughs> there's predictably actually, perfect. There's actually predictably perfect. There's actually
1: a business. It's an advertising agency that's right down the street from uh, from my studio here, where I am today. And the name of the agency is called Seventy Two and Sunny.
0: Nice. <laughs> I was like, that could
1: only be in L.A.
0: Yeah, that is beautiful weather. I go to San Diego a lot, and that's what it always is. God's country, absolutely. Yeah.
1: no, but there's I, I like the variability. I like the seasons. The seasons are interesting in that all of nature reflects God, obviously. But the seasons are interesting because uh, and 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 the changes in climate are interesting because they kind of orient us to this idea that things constantly change except for God, right? At least it does for me. It's like, you know, things can evolve. So in a place like l a, which, you know, true to its um, you know, maybe reputation, Things can get a little laid back here. You know what I mean? Because you <laughs> kind of think like it's always going to be this way. Lull right, yourself right, right. into a false sense of security.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I talk about Wisconsin as God's country because the, the seasons line perfectly up with the liturgical seasons of the year. So, hmm. you know, during, during Advent, we have, it's kind of barren. There's no snow. It's not that pretty, but you're waiting for the beautiful Newness of snow to fall, so you can celebrate Jesus' birth and how he made the, the earth new. And then in the spring during Lent, everything is barren. It's the worst time of year. It's rainy, drizzly, cold, totally mortifying flying to your flesh. And then you burst forth and the lilacs start coming out, and the tulips start springing up, and it's Easter. and it so it really is it's it's an awesome place to grow up catechetically with kids.
1: Well, uh, let's talk about that. I mean, you grew up uh, evangelical. You grew up on, in, yeah. the, in the Protestant tradition, Assemblies of God, I think, right? Yes. Um, was there much of a like liturgical— th- th- probably, let me ask it a different way. Was there any sort of understanding of seasonality within the tradition you grew up in?
0: No. No, it was uh, all of a sudden— the, the there were holy days— uh, you know, so no matter what day Christmas fell uh on during the week, we were at church, and uh always at church on Good Friday, always at church, I mean every Sunday my family went to church i, I grew up in a, a family that would never miss um, so there were holy days, Pentecost was a holy day, uh you know, they don't call them holy days, but those those are just days when you're 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 gonna wear your best clothes, you're gonna be at church and and for Christmas uh any whatever day of the week that was on we were going to church uh, you, and then good friday
1: when you first came in contact with the notion of a liturgical calendar and the ideas of liturgical seasons penitential seasons etc what'd you would you make of that
0: i liked the seasons i liked uh in terms of preparation i liked preparing for christmas i loved advent right away um i didn't understand uh the penitential aspect uh, in you know, in the Protestant world, we don't, uh, we didn't fast, uh, penitentially. Mm. Um, we, at least not, not the way I grew up. We grew, we fasted, we did fast, but it was from a standpoint of intercessory prayer
2: mm.
0: and, um, you know, for renewal of the world, renew of our community, conversion of hearts, uh, we would fast for those reasons. Um, but, uh, when I first heard of penitential seasons, uh, it was from my, my mentor at the time. He said, Oh, I love Lent. And, and I said, Oh, what do you love about Lent? Just seems kind of sad. And, mm. uh, he's like, Oh, it's just a great time of year to take stock and who I am and my sinfulness and, and just bring it all to the Lord and, and celebrate the resurrection and, and, and the Lord's victory over all of my sin and weakness. Mm. and um so he just had, he had a great way of framing it for me, but it was, it was very foreign. Uh, the idea of even, you know, even though you have sackcloth and ashes in the scriptures and you see, you see penance at work, it just wasn't a lived reality. Uh, in the way that I grew up, it you know, if you were, if you were struggling with sin, um, it was because you, you weren't trusting in the forgiveness in the mm. work of Jesus on the cross. Mm. And so, you know, penance, penance didn't really have a place. Um, except in with people who, whose faith was not strong enough to accept Christ's work on the cross. Mm. And, um, and so I think, I think the Catholic notion is far more closer to reality, you know, that we're all, always wrestling with our weakness and always expressing our contrition to the Lord for our weakness uh, while still trusting and confident in the victory of, of the resurrection. Um, so, you know, I've grown into it, but yeah, it was definitely a foreign, it was a foreign concept.
1: When in the Protestant tradition that you came from the, uh, you know, when you were doing this fasting for the good of the world and, and peace and all of that was, was the notion, was there any notion of the, maybe the discomfort of fasting being important in the efficacy of that prayer? Or was it like, how does how did fasting actually factor into that prayer for the world?
0: Yeah, I think the way I would have thought about it at the time, trying not to import now my Catholic formation. Yeah, um, I think I would have thought of it as a way of um, being uh, more constantly at, in prayer uh, through fasting, feeling the hunger, mm. having these constant reminders to pray. And uh, enter into the prayer with my body. Um, it, there wouldn't have been a notion of the um, the uh, uh, uniting that sacrifice with Jesus, um, like we would have as, a, as a, in the Catholic Church. Um, you know, uniting uniting the sacrifice to the sacrifice of the cross and the power of of Jesus's intercession um, through my fellowship with him in that suffering, mm. uh, that, that wasn't, that wasn't taught to me that, that formation, I, I don't, I don't know that that's not Protestant. There, there might be Protestants sure. that have that notion, but, um, but I wasn't taught that. Uh, I learned that as a Catholic and, yeah, you and have loved to,
1: it. You have to deal with, uh, St. Paul talking about completing the sufferings of Christ yes. in his own
0: body. What is lacking. Yeah. What is what lacking, is lacking what is in lacking? the sacrifice of Christ. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, no, I didn't know what to do with that passage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember hearing a sermon on it.
2: <laughs> I yeah, think that's, that's a true. one. That's true. I mean,
0: Catholics, Catholics would have really strong answers to that. Uh, but I, I do not remember a sermon on that.
1: Well, I think the idea of fasting too is, you know, at its, at its very heart, there is a, a very much a communal aspect to it. There's like mm-hmm. a, um, you know, the the body of Christ is sort of in the background of the notion of fasting, because at least one of the reasons to do it, and I've, you know, I just, I did a a show, a whole show actually with my friend Astrid uh, Gutierrez, who's a major uh, pro-life influencer, but we did an entire show just on fasting. Mm. I think there's a number of different things, but one of them uh, is this notion of offering, right, that those, That discomfort or those pangs or whatever it is, for the purposes of somebody else's uh, deeper conversion and of course our own, but you know there there is this sense of kind of 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 uh, you know not completing but of what you just said which I forgot, but of um of the of the of the sufferings of Christ right basically doing our part as the body of Christ on a continual daily basis yes for the purposes of the conversion and advancement of other good things in the world. So there's always like that for me operating in the background. The best way that I've thought about fasting, and we talked about this on that show, was the notion that, you know, we are integrated wholes. We're integrated beings. And, you know, we can pray. We, the person, prays in a variety of different ways, mentally and et cetera, right? We can offer, offer our prayers verbally. But the body, which is also created by God, Maybe has a way of praying as well. And maybe yeah. thinking of fasting as the way that the body prays is an interesting, you know, kind of a I
0: love that, yeah, I love that that's 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 why it's it's there's so much rich teaching on fasting because the saints have been driven to it for for thousands of years. and um as as you see a reality lived out, you seek to. Uh, to explain what the Holy Spirit is doing and why the Holy Spirit would be doing that, mm. and it it starts out as a mystery, a lived reality of zeal for Jesus, uh, and then theologians work to put their arms around it. And why is the Spirit leading people into that? Why do the Scriptures teach that? And and thousands of years of reflection and meditation on the lives of saints and oh, and Jesus for forty days uh, in the desert. You know, you 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 come up and you have such rich Um, robust teaching around it. Yeah. And I love that teaching, just that we can pray with our body, not just our words, that we're, we're whole persons, uh, our soul, um, uh, soul, strength, mind, uh, heart, all united, all praying. And so that, that can be our body's part
1: bringing that whole uh, that whole person to the table. I mean, zeal mm-hmm. is actually interesting. You told me earlier um in in our call about your kind of maybe you're using these just these numbers illustratively, but you talked about the fact that maybe there's a half a million on fire or zealous catholics versus a population of 70 million total catholics or roughly thereabouts mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um and presumably that's somewhere in the background of why you started or why you're now leading rather the, you know, evangelical Catholic, which is, you know, you're the president of. But, I mean, how often do you run into like zeal, zealous or on fire Catholics and, and where are we in relation to that kind of scale or that, that sort of metric it, from your view as a convert?
2: Well, I think we all
0: have the experience of of meeting people who are Catholic who are not on fire, and we hold a lot of com- lot in common with them uh, as just baptized believers uh, on receiving from the same altar and uh, that's beautiful, and we we have a lot to talk with them about, and uh, there's a lot a uh, lot of common experiences they understand. They understand Lent, uh, at least this, you know, what the season, some common practices during the season, not eating meats and things that uh, Protestant brothers and sisters don't know and don't understand. And, and there, there is a brotherhood, a sisterhood in that. Um, but uh, and then you meet Protestants who are on fire for the scriptures and on, on fire for for Jesus and, uh, and you share deep fellowship with them. Uh, around the table of the word and and uh, zeal for evangelization, but man, when you meet a Catholic who brings it all together uh, and and is uh, who, whose eyes burn with uh, love for Jesus and hope for the world, and and um, and they live their life uh, to to love people sacrificially uh, and wash the feet of their neighbors, um, and they they rise every day. With a prayer on their lips and go to bed every night uh thanking the Lord for the day and asking for a, a safe, peaceful rest. Those people are uh when when you meet those people, it's instant, uh, close communion. And um how, you know, there there are there are a lot of them. You know, there are a lot of people in the Catholic Church living that way. Um but locally I, I don't you know, locally, they're not, they're not that common. Like when mm. you put the whole thing together, I do think there's, there's between a half a million and a million on the high side, uh, in the United States, which a lot is a lot, you know, even if you break it down by state, but if you start breaking it down by uh county and you start breaking it down by city and you start breaking it down by parish, yeah. uh, it doesn't add up to a lot. Mm. And so growing up, you know, I, I did. I didn't meet a Catholic who had that kind of love for Jesus until I started dating my uh, girlfriend my junior year of high school. um, At the time, who who I've now married, Uh, but her family was the first family that really had that that love for Jesus, and it blew me away. I couldn't Mm. believe my eyes uh, when my uh, now father in law at the time, my girlfriend's dad, after dinner pulled out a big red lectionary and said, all right, let's have a little Bible study. (laughs) Like I never met a Catholic who loved the Bible, who was interested in studying, who talked about Jesus naturally and joyfully. Um, yeah, so there are many, um, but, but they are there and, and it's a source of great encouragement when you meet People
1: like that. It's hard not to resist the 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 temptation to quip that there's probably a healthy percentage of Catholics who don't even know what the word lectionary means, yeah. let alone have one in their house. Mm-hmm. But it is um interesting to me this idea that you pick that you paint, this picture that you paint about when all things come together. Because mm-hmm. from the vantage of a of you know, formerly a, a Protestant evangelical, you know, there's so much zeal that is contained in, in some of those, in, in some sectors of that community, with what we would look at now as Catholics, objectively, far fewer tools. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you've got the scriptures, hallelujah, amen for mm-hmm. that. You you could immediately say, well, you you don't have all the scriptures because you're missing a few books, that kind of thing. <laughs> but But you've got that. And yet, nevertheless, when I come across, especially converts, but even I have a lot of Protestant friends. The, the The love, the zeal, the the friendship and relationship that they have with Jesus is very full and and beautiful and lovely and it and it's so transformative in a variety of different communities. But being Catholic, we you know if if we're operating at that at that level of integration, that level of, of sort of fullness, we we, can, we have all of those things plus we have the fullness of what the church gives us sacramentally, devotionally, mm-hmm. intellectually, like all of these different things. And it, it's, it's so beautiful to watch all those pieces come together. You know what I mean? Around yes. certain things. Um, I I don't know if you know the apologist, Steve Ray, um, mm-hmm. he he does now he does mostly tours of the Holy land and that kind of stuff. But he, he was in that early guard of like eighties, nineties apologist that kind of blew up, you know, in, in the U S and he's a former he's a former baptist he's a convert as well and the way that he describes it which i always thought was interesting and it it probably runs the risk of offending some people maybe but only if they're looking at it at the surface he described at some point his experience as a protestant as being impoverished that's what he said that's the word that he used and nevertheless like is true when you run into poor people sometimes like if you go to africa or developing nations you oftentimes find great joy despite not having all Mm -hmm. these different things Right. So he described it as like, you know, I didn't have all these beautiful riches, these treasures when I was a Protestant. I had the relationship with Christ, and that ultimately is the most important. But when I came into the church, I had like that plus all these great gifts that God wants to give me. And I always thought that idea of the, the you know, impoverishment was an interesting way to describe it um, and and how that sort of changes or is fulfilled when you come into full communion with the church.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, our our founder... The uh, founder of the Evangelical Catholic used to talk about a mutual impoverishment between mm. Catholics and Protestants, and of course, he didn't mean that. Um, he didn't mean that in terms of uh, with the Catholic Church in terms of uh, what's actually there. You know, what's actually there is a is a rich devotion of the Scriptures that you find in the Scripture in, in the Saints throughout all time, um, and a rich sacramental life, but practically the way it's lived out and the experience in the local community um, has been uh, has been a real impoverishment on the Catholic side. There's an impoverishment of of zealous supportive intimate community there's a there's an impoverishment there has been an impoverishment of of small groups and um, mm. uh, more intimate communion there's been an impoverishment of preaching, uh, strong preaching on the scriptures. I mean studies show that, People who leave the Catholic Church, many of them uh, leave for those two reasons, for communion and and solid, inspiring scripture teaching. And, uh, and it's been an impoverishment. It's not an impoverishment in our magisterial teaching or even in our tradition, but in the lived experience of Catholicism Yeah, at the local community, there's an impoverishment there. And on the other side is a real impoverishment, I think a doctrinal impoverishment um, sacramentally, you know, you just don't you don't have, as you said, you don't have all of the experience of Jesus that the Lord intended us to have when you don't have the Eucharist and and when you don't have the other sacraments that that have been given to us passed down through the ages through the church. so uh, so it, it is there is an impoverishment on the Protestant side, almost by nature inherent to what Protestantism is and grew up to be as a result of the reformation. But on the Catholic side, there is, there's also an impoverishment of just uh, lived experience. Yeah, and and we're not, we're not experiencing the riches that Jesus intended us to experience because of the way that the church has, has uh, evolved and, and grown up and um, the diminishment of the devotion to the scriptures, the diminishment of the practice of preaching, the diminishment of the, the, the broad, uh, level of com- conversion in a community just we're not experiencing we're not experiencing a lot of the life of Jesus that that they are experiencing in the protestant churches at a local level.
1: I've heard you uh, s- I've heard you speak before on something very insightful which I kind of recall as the notion that you can't evangelize someone you don't love. Mm. And I may I may be, I'm paraphrasing I may have gotten that wrong but something along those lines and do you think that is at the heart of the communal impoverishment that Catholics experience?
0: Well, yeah, I, I think it's related because um, in, my, in, my time, in my time in the Protestant world, uh, my parents were surrounded by um, zealous believers who, uh, who loved my parents who shared deep community with my parents. I, I grew up kind of in this greenhouse of love. Mm. Uh, I, I, saw, I saw my dad um, easily and um, intentionally strike up conversations with um, the Ace Hardware worker, <laughs> you know, and uh, people at the grocery store helping them spontaneously with their groceries. And, and I knew because I saw my dad pray in the morning. I knew it was it was out of an overflow of his love for Jesus that he was loving the world. And so you grow up in this greenhouse of love supported by that kind of community. And I do think it teaches you to love the world. And it uh, I saw him very curious and my mom too, just very curious about people asking lots of questions about people, getting to know them um, outside of the church at, um, you know, piano concerts that we would go to where we would rub shoulders with people who weren't in our church uh, and so I, I think that, yeah, I think I think it is related. The experience of communion and communio within within the body of Christ teaches you to love. The children grow up in a greenhouse of love, uh, and and then they they watch their parents as an overflow of that love that yeah. is fostered in that community. They watch their parents love the world, and so yeah, I do think I I think um, it's common. It's common in the Protestant and Catholic worlds to start thinking of ourselves as us versus them mm. and to defend ourselves from the world and put up walls and protect ourselves and um, hate people who are pro-abortion, <laughs> you know and 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 set up set up um, divisions between us and them to protect ourselves. Yep. Uh, that's, that's common, but you can't, when you do that, you cannot evangelize. You've all of a sudden decided, I, I don't care if those people go to hell. I don't care if those people experience the abundant life of Jesus in this world because I have no interest in loving them because they hold a position that is so abhorrent to me. I I cannot, I cannot get myself to wash their feet, to help with their groceries because I see a bumper sticker on their car and I'm immediately turned off by it.
2: Man, and so I it! I did. Yeah.
0: I did not see my parents do that. Mm. My parents were not, uh, and that might have been a fruit of the, char- the charismatic movement, just having a, a more fluidity uh, in understanding the mystery and, and the kind of weirdness of the Holy Spirit. My parents didn't didn't dig in against uh, particular doctrinal p- positions or even against um, people who loved rock and roll in the world. <laughs> you know, right? Like, uh, like at the time was more common in the eighties, you know, among mm-hmm. fundamentalist evangelical Protestants, my parents were not that kind of, uh, parents. Um, but I think it's common, you know, now I see it in the, in the church and, uh, I do believe it's true that you, you can't evangelize people, uh, that you don't, that you don't love. You can't evangelize a world you don't love.
1: That image of overflowing love too is so, um, you know, the cup runneth over, right? There, there, mm-hmm. there it, it is a, a characteristic of love that makes it really unique among the virtues in many respects. Really unique mm-hmm. among everything in the universe. If you think about it, love is kind of the only thing that expands as you expend it. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. you actually can have a lot more of it the more you give it away. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like your dad, you know, under lived that, understood that. Um, and I, I do think that the motivation that we have today in today's world about the bumper sticker and therefore you're a lost cause so I won't bother is definitely manifest, there's no question about it. The other one that I've seen is this idea of being, um, you know, selfish with the way that we love because we're afraid of either love not being, you know, being unrequited, not giving not given back or somehow that we will exhaust our ability to love. You know where I came across this was actually when we first, we have we're foster parents. Um it's been a number of years since we've had foster kids, but but we fostered kids in the back in in, in the past. And I remember when my wife and I were talking about fostering we, we we fostered a brother and sister for about, you know, 13 14 months something like that. And um I remember talking to people in secular environments, like at work, okay? Talking to them about fostering and the response was pretty commonly something along the lines of, oh, that's wonderful. I could never do that. Or, oh, that's amazing. Good for you. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always mm-hmm. found it fascinating that response because my immediate inclination would be like, well, why just me? Why good for me? Why, why mm-hmm. couldn't it be good for you? And if you kind of double click into, into that sentiment, what's behind it is this idea, which may be natural, right? This idea of, well, if I give my love away, I might fall in love with that person and then they're going to leave. And so I'm going to be kind of heartbroken. Right. So there's this sense of like, there's a, there's a limited capacity of what you can give out in terms of love. And, and, and if that's somehow gone, then I might be in a state that would be vulnerable or, or, or what have you. I find that like a really interesting thought process and something maybe more unique to us as Americans and other parts of the world. I don't know, but it's definitely, it's operating somewhere in the background, um, at least in some, for some people as a reason why they won't do that conversation with the guy at the store or at the Ace Hardware or whatever, that it's like I don't want to give this out because I may never get it back. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and we're kind of trained to keep a tight circle of friends, not not on social media, but interpersonally. Uh, there's there's you know we have we have our people and we have we have our friends, and and those are the ones that we're going to give ourselves to. And we kind of, for the sake of balance, for the sake of uh, you know restoring ourselves uh, after you know a hard work week, and just to um, to have emotional health and and um, you know this these are I, I can't I can't throw my energy uh, away. Like you said, I, I think that's a really good point that that we think love uh, has a limit. I only have so much to give out, and so I need to save it my inner circle I need to save it for my kids and um yeah I, I think that's that's a really interesting point I, I know I know even when I had three kids uh it, I wondered if I had enough love for a fourth yeah exactly it's a totally <laughs> you know? natural thought yeah yeah like do I have enough time do I have enough love um yeah but but love love is never it's always been amazing. Every new child I had, I had more love. Of course. It, yeah. And it's like you love I, each I, you one know, infinitely.
1: I, and it's like, where, where, where did infinity come from if I just gave infinity away?
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. And God is love. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing that, to, to realize that God is love. Even, even love uh, between unbelievers, God is there and he is love. And, and like you said, it expands, it multiplies the more, the more you embrace it. Um, you know, time time is finite, money is finite. And so those are those are important factors, but but love, yeah, it, that's been my experience as well. It, it expands.
1: One of the things that I dig about what you're doing with Evangelical Catholic is the emphasis on friendship, right? Friendship mm-hmm. as this kind of you know, vehicle for ultimate transformation, right? And it sounds really simple when you kind of think about it. It was like, oh yeah, let's just let's be friends with people. But as you've already mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a, a sense of polarity in our country now that perhaps hasn't existed for a very long time. I think in some cases we try to make more of it than it is. A lot of it is a little bit of an echo coming back from social media and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much of it is real, but the perception of polarity is very strong. Um, and the, 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 this kind of dynamic that you talked about earlier, dismissing the bumper sticker guy or gal and just saying, okay, they're a lost cause is an affront to f- sort of French friendship, right? The idea of making friends. So I really love that thrust that you and, and, and your team have around kind of creating these friendships and sort of implicit in that, and I don't, this is what I want you to comment on because I don't know if this is true. I'm just saying it, but implicit in this idea of friendship is that God is going to take care of the rest, right? So it's like, let's start with this and kind of open the door um, and it may be with people we don't agree with people that don't, you know, speak our language, dress like we do have the same kind of lived experiences we do, but nevertheless, it's sort of the, the starting point, but, but, but it, it, it implies a faith and trust in God to kind of fill in the blanks. Am I, is that, mm. am I onto something there or? Is,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right that, well, in friendship, in friendship is a, is a genuine experience of love. And, you know, we don't talk that way. Maybe as a, as a culture, we talk about love being, you know, in a more intimate sexual way. Uh, But phileo love is, is a real thing. And, and the experience of phileo, you know, uh, God called Moses, his friend Mm. and, and these fundamental biblical images of Jesus's friendship with the disciples. It was an environment of love and, uh, you know, G- Jesus says to, um, to Peter, um, Peter, do you agape me?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Peter says, uh, Lord, you know, I phileo you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know about agape, but oh man, do I phileo you. Mm-hmm. I I have great brotherly uh, love for you as a, as a friend, as a brother. And, um, and so uh, where there is love, there is God, and where there is love, it's transformative. And where there is love, God is there, working out His plan, uh, and uh, His kingdom is coming. His will is being done, and and until you have love, and uh, there is there is no possibility for evangelization in a healthy way. You can you can maybe coerce. Uh, you can maybe uh, if you're really smart argue. About it but i I don't know there's not genuine evangelization until there's love mm. and and so the the mat, the most natural place for love to be fostered in humanity is is friendship mm. and we can all we can all do it we can all allow the Lord to bring about friendship even with people who initially may have repulsed us and and but but when there is when there starts to be love when there starts to be empathy when there starts to be um understanding, true understanding between two people. Um, now we have a place where the Holy Spirit can inspire the believer to ask the right questions and share the right things in such a way that will actually be loving toward the person that they can receive and not feel judged and not feel labeled, uh, not feel discounted, uh, not feel talked down to. Um, you know, and, and until there's love and empathy uh, in a relationship, um, all those risks are on the table, but when there's love and empathy in a relationship, um, then all of a sudden we, we can speak to each other mm. and commune in that love and therefore commune in God. And, and that's attractive to every single human being on the planet, no matter what the political differences, no matter what the lifestyle differences, uh, that's attractive, that love, that experience of love, everybody's drawn to it. And so, so yeah, the, the fundamental building block, uh, that, that we teach, um, that we form lay people in is first how to form good friendships, how to ask good questions, how to meet people where they are and not, not bring them where you are, Mm. but meet them where they are.
1: I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about that in terms of, you know, getting down to brass tacks, because I know obviously you do this and your organization does this equip lay people to go out and, uh, you know, evangelize the world, but getting down to like the practical level, if I'm a person who has a difficulty, let's say I'm one of those bumper sticker people and I acknowledge it. I'll raise my hand and say, Mm -hmm. I'm not, but I'm saying, let's say I raise my hand and say, okay, I just, I, I can't wrap my head around Jason person X or party Y or orientation Z. Like I just, I just can't get there and I have an aversion but I recognize that <clears throat> on a practical level, what advice would you give me? Like what, where, where do I start, right? To, to kind of get to that point where I can love someone so that I can properly enter into a friendship with them and, and kind of mm-hmm. let God handle the rest.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, um, a couple of thoughts, uh, came to my mind. First of all, um, St. John Paul II talked about the family as the school of love. Mm. And I also think friendships are the school of love. And, And so through our growing in love for friends who are different from us, we learn to love strangers who are different from us. All of a sudden, I see in that stranger with the bumper sticker, my friend who is deeply committed to abortion. As, as a, 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 a tenant of freedom in our country. And I love my friend. And I understand why, why he has that view. I, I've heard the story of his family. I've heard the story of other friendships that he's had. I see how he's arrived at this position. And he's not, he's not a Nazi. He, he's a loving, really good person. In fact, his virtue surpasses mine in a lot of areas of his life. And so I, I, I come to love him. I come to understand him. I come to empathize with his mistaken position uh, based on his life experience. And now when I see a bumper sticker on a stranger's car, I'm more able to understand and empathize with, with them mm. and know that they're, they're proud, their virtue probably surpasses mine in all kinds of other areas of mm. their life. And so, um, so it softens me toward the world, my friendships with, with people. um. You asked the starting point. Well, that's, that's one of the starting points is just, you know, the school of love that we have in family and friendship. Mm. Um, And, you know, in families, families divide ideologically all the time. time. Sure. And, And, and we as believers can't let that happen. And, and we, we turn our back on the school of love offered to us in a family. If we allow ideological differences to divide us, and if we seek trying to grow in love and empathy for family members and understanding understanding them, if all we want to do is win them over to our position and not understand them and not not come to empathize with them, mm-hmm. we're, we're missing out on what God wants to teach us in that school of love. And we're missing out on the opportunity to, to come to love the world in a richer way through the school of love that is family. Um, so, I think that that is a starting point. The other starting point, I think, is, is prayer. Um, so, I have a friend who uh, works at a winery And his, uh, his boss, the general manager of the winery is a, is a a man who is gay and is, is married to another man. And, um, in, in that would not have turned my friend off, but he's also just kind of mean, Mm. (laughs) he's just kind of a mean, mean, bitter, um, uh, kind of passive aggressive person. Mm. And so my friend, my friend was, uh, pretty turned off by him, obviously, as a person who worked under that man. Uh, who just is unhealthy in a lot of ways emotionally, and um, but he started praying for him. You know, he recognized, my friend, that I shouldn't, I don't want to feel this way toward him. Uh, I don't want to feel hatred toward him. I don't want to write him off. Lord, you put me here for a reason. Help me to love him. Show me, show me um, how to love him. And so, uh, so shortly after that, a few weeks after he was praying about this, didn't didn't want to harbor these feelings of resentment toward his boss. Um, there was a, a conference on uh, making wine in uh, uh, about three hours away. And so uh, by God's grace, you could say they were chosen to ride together, the two of them just one on one. Nice. Well, my friend is loathing this, you know, but also kind of saw the potential work of God in it. And so he starts praying, you know, give me Lord, give me the ability to have a, a rich conversation with this this guy who I loathe uh, and show me how to love. And so he just starts asking the guy questions, you know, meeting, meeting the guy where he's at, tell me about your life. Tell me about, you know, how'd you get into making wine? And, you know, it, what was your interest in this? And eventually it gets real. And, um, tell me about your family. And the guy shares how, when he was, uh, when he was 14, his father chased him off his property with a gun and told him never to come back because he came out to his father and told him he was gay.
2: Mm. Deep at 14.
0: Wound. Deep wound. Oh my goodness. And all of a sudden, all this empathy flooded yeah. into my friend. Yeah. I mean, he he didn't start weeping, but he felt like he wanted to in Course. the car just start weeping for for this guy who he had previously loathed.
2: Hmm.
0: And so now the Holy Spirit just starts to soften his heart about why this guy is the way he is. And, and it's opened up a whole new um, pathway of potential friendship with this guy. Uh, just through his empathy. And now he can look past his quirks and he can look past his lifestyle choices and he can enter into a real relationship. It all happened because of prayer. The Holy Spirit desperately wants to bring us into communion with everybody. He desperately wants to manifest himself in love Mm -hmm. between every human relationship and possibility for friendship. So as we pray and ask the Holy Spirit and truly surrender to, to his plans for a relationship, even though we may loathe it, we may not want it. But if we surrender to it as Jesus surrendered to the cross, then the Holy Spirit will teach us how to love. And then, and then the, now, now in this relationship, the, the whole horizon uh, is open to this relationship. Now that he's starting to understand, uh, pretty soon through their friendship, this guy will ask my friend. Why are you the way you are? You know, what What religious tradition are you? How could you possibly be that? My dad was Baptist and he did that to you, you know, mm-hmm. and he'll have an opportunity to vocally express empathy on behalf of Christians <laughs> saying your dad was not living Jesus's message by doing that to you. I'm so sorry that happened to you. You can just see the reconciliation healing that can possibly come through this relationship as it grows deeper.
1: That's beautiful. And none of it would have happened mm-hmm. without that prayer, right? For the Holy Spirit right. to open up that pathway of dialogue to be able to have that encounter. That's beautiful. School of love and prayer. The other thing I think about of the, the experience with your with your friend with the, with the vineyard um, or with this wine experience is something that I've found that we sometimes don't pay attention to. And that is God's way of transforming us, teaching us, forming us, by mm-hmm. virtue of these exchanges where we think we're the principal agent, right? So in other words, yes. it's it's really easy to get caught up with this, especially in ministry, right? This idea that like, here's this guy who's living a homosexual lifestyle or or doing something else. um, And please, Lord, help me love him. Please, Lord, help me do this. And your orientation, at least on some level, but your orientation is, let me get in there so that I can help him, right? So that I can fix him, so that I can do whatever. But we lose track of the fact that in that exchange, God may be trying to teach us something, right? And shape Mm -hmm. us in a particular way. And it sounds like that may have been the case with your friend as well, because there's something formative about coming to the awareness that, oh my gosh, I was thinking this, Mm
2: -hmm. but now
1: there's all this sort of great rationale uh, as to why at least this person's behaving in this way. What does that teach me about myself, about my ability to judge, about my ability to empathize, about my ability to 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 minister to be to be fr- to, about my view of friendship itself. So there's this sort of like you know, two- way kind of uh, uh, of dynamic that the Holy Spirit enacts, right? it 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 really is rarely, and in my experience, increasingly, I'm finding almost never a one way thing where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm doing this thing, and I get like the tick, the little check mark of like, you know, good job, you've you've helped this person move that that step further. It's like it happens simultaneously that like as the person moves forward, it kind of moves you forward in a
0: way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, because there's, there is a mutual exchange. There's a uh, there's in, in every in every relationship of love and in every dynamic of love, there's a mutual self-giving. Mm. There's a mutual self-gift and and um, in the self-gift of love is is revelatory because it's what God is love. So. Whenever there's a self gift of love, there's there's a, a revelation, of some sort. And and when we when we feel like well, when we're when we consider ourselves to be the only one in a relationship possible of making a self gift that is revelatory, then then we actually don't have a self. We don't have a relationship. We don't have a friendship. All we have is a project. And and so yeah, the, the humility to believe truly that I have I have something. Uh, to, to learn from this, some, this person, I have, I have a way to grow that this person can offer me. Uh, That's, that's key. That's, that's key to, that's a key posture of humility um, in a, in a relationship.
1: You, you, you receive as you give a hundred percent. So Mm -hmm. I I asked you, Jason, some kind of practical things and thank you, you uh, delivered in spades in terms of what people can do. This, this next one may be a little bit different in the sense that what I'm curious about is what, in your experience, leading uh, Evangelical Catholic and training up and equipping the people that you do to do this kind of work, what are the biggest issues that prevent us from those things? What What are the obstacles that you see out in the world that kind of hamstring our efforts to actually do this, whether they're technological or cultural or whatever they may be like what what are those things
0: well i think per i think personally for individuals i mean a lot of people have just not experienced the transforming abundant life of jesus and so they would never even think to share him with the world uh but then there are there's that you know 500 to seven hundred thousand people uh Roughly in our country, who who have experienced the abundant life of Jesus. They've been transformed through a retreat. They've gone to a powerful confession. they've they've um, listened to some tapes. You know, they've read a book. Something has lit them up for Jesus. They realize he is the source of all my hope. The answer to every question, the the deepest solace that I could ever receive, compassion that surpasses all understanding, you know, he is everything he says he is and that the church says he is those people, those people, um, God wants to use to make disciples in the world. Mm. Uh, God wants to use to, to spread the fragrance of Jesus in the world. Uh, but they, they, they don't know, they don't know how to do that. Uh, they think that they have to study more theology. They think that they have to learn the apologetic arguments from the mm-hmm, church,
2: mm-hmm. Uh,
0: They or they think that their parish has to get its act together so they can actually invite them to the parish. <laughs> right. You know, it's like a gating think, item.
1: Yeah. Like yeah,
0: a, they think, they, yeah, they think, yeah, they, uh, and all, all those things, all those things, there's some truth to all those things, sure. but fundamentally, none of those things are barriers to friendship. And none of those things are barriers to the power of the Holy Spirit that will work through them in the midst of their friendship to share the right things at the right time. And, uh, and, and so what needs to happen, I think, is, is a bit of orientation um, of these people and their lives outward to love the world uh, so that you can evangelize the world, not quickly, uh, most of the time, very slowly. Uh, and and in order for that to happen, um, we need we need pastors, we need uh, pastoral staffs at local communities to start to start giving people simple ways mm. of spreading the fragrance of Jesus in the community, and and being able to witness for Him when the time is right. Mm. Uh, that's that's not happening. People don't have that mindset. They don't they don't feel like the Great Commission really is theirs to accomplish. They they don't feel like they can go to the world and make disciples of every nation, and they feel like the parish needs to be doing that. And until the parish uh, starts offering some program that I can plug into, if I have some time, uh, I guess I guess I'll just grow as a disciple. Um, and, and most people think the the great mission of the church is to is to um, to help form disciples. Um, but the mission of the church is actually to train disciple makers. Mm. That, that's what the church needs to be doing. We're not going to accomplish the Great Commission until we are sending disciple makers into the world. It's not enough to make disciples in the church. The Great Commission never would have been accomplished if the church only made disciples. That's not what Paul did with Timothy or Titus. That's not what Peter did with Mark. That's not what St. Uh, John did with um, Polycarp. They made disciple makers, and that's how that's how we know about uh, Jesus in in the United States. Because disciple makers came to the United States and started making disciple makers. More, yeah, and and so that's th- those are a couple things that are holding us back.
1: It's like uh, it's like the celestial pyramid scheme, right? <laughs> it's like you're 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 making sellers of of other things rather than actually worrying about who buys the the the, the physical product. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, I think that that's why the idea of the laity and mm-hmm. its role in the world is so important. I mean, I, I'm convinced that you know the Holy Spirit, the the wind that was blowing, like uh, Saint uh, Saint uh, John the Twenty Third uh, talked about, was this idea of the the sort of new Pentecost was really around this orientation of the laity's participation in becoming disciple makers and the church's role in creating disciple makers because it isn't about what the parish necessarily has as a program or whether or not the parish office has its act together or whether or not somebody has confirmation program X, Y, or Z or whatever it is, right? We kind of get lost in some of that stuff. And I think um, reminding, you know, the world on a consistent basis of the importance and the role and the duty, frankly— that the laity have in bringing this message to the world is critical. I mean, it's like you—it's mm-hmm. one of those things you can't say oftentimes enough. I hear this all the time, by the way. And, and you, as as a deacon, right? I I, I hear this and, ex, and experience this all the time. It's like people almost asking me or the pastor for permission to go do something like no, no, no. It's like <laughs> then, I should be asking you if it's okay with you if we do something like this, right? But mm-hmm. there's this kind of chip change that needs to happen. I'm not sure why it hasn't as much. Maybe it's the way that we envision the church hierarchically or the or the value and, 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 and importance of the clergy, which of course the clergy is, but there's something there that we need a constant reminder about the importance of the laity and its role in the transformation of the world, because it's not going to happen without the laity. I, I preached on this just the other day. I said, you know how many deacons there are in LA? There's 450 there's a 1,000 priests. That's 1,400 people for 5 million Catholics. Now, Mm -hmm. you tell me how 1,400 people are going to serve the needs of 5 million people. I'll wait. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. So, you know, I I don't know what it is to get people to kind of understand that or for that kind of gear to click, but it doesn't happen without the laity, you know, doing its disciple-making you know, it's disciple becoming and and it's disciple making duties. It really doesn't work,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I think the culture of our parishes in in terms of offering programs, um, offering events, offering special interest activities you know this this obsession that we've had with getting people involved uh, is holding the whole enterprise back. It's holding mm. the Great Commission back. Um, one of the things we talk about is a heresy of involvement, that, wow. that involvement will, will be the answer to the church's woes. Involvement will bring about the discipleship, the tithing, the activity, the glory of the church. Involvement's going to restore all of it. And when I worked at a parish, we, we'd come to staff meetings and I just came to, to abhor this question, how are we going to get more people involved? Mm. You know, that, that was the, the driving question of the staff meeting. And, you know, coming from a Protestant upbringing, I just, I didn't care about getting more people involved. I, as as a director of youth ministry, I knew about 10 girls uh, cutting themselves in the community. One mm-hmm. who had just had an abortion, guys who were getting beat up by their dads at night and smoking pot to fall asleep. You know, people, I, I knew the lost. And now how how am i going to get to them how yeah. am i going to bring the gospel to them how can they experience the freedom of jesus these are the questions the church needs to be asking at staff meetings and 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 if they start asking those questions then they're going to come to the calculation that you just had which is we can't we need just like jesus looked on the crowds with compassion his guts twisted and, and his disciples looked at him wondering, well, you've been healing people and casting out demons all day long in Galilee. What are you doing now? Why are you stopping? Why are you crying? You know, tears are running down his face as his guts twist. And he says, the harvest is abund- abundant, but the, the laborers are, are few. few. The laborers were too few for Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he, he's too few for Jesus. Jesus did the calculation. He looked at the crowds. He said, I can spend all day, all night for the next week trying to minister to all these people who are lonely, despairing, demonically oppressed, sick, lepers, blind, deaf, all these people I cannot get to them. Yep. And, and the church done. has to the mm-hmm. church has to have the same compassion for the world right now and do the same calculation you did, which is we can't do it. We need more laborers. And if the church starts focusing on raising up laborers rather than trying to get people involved, then we'll start making an impact. Then then these 700,000 Catholics who right now love Jesus sitting in our pews will be mobilized. If they're moved with compassion for the crowds like Jesus was, they will be mobilized into their circles of influence to pray and fast and form friendships and watch the Holy Spirit come alive.
1: It's almost and like and the,
0: that, that's what needs to happen.
1: It's almost like the difference between it, rather than saying, how can we be involved? It's like, how can I enter into relationship with, with, uh, with the people that are doing yes. the things that, that, um, that you discussed, I think there's also something vaguely bureaucratic about the notion of thinking of involvement, right? Like it's a, um, like you're trying to optimize a process or you're trying to, yeah. to, 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 uh, to make sure that you've got proper attendance at some, you know, mm-hmm. event, it reminds me we just had a pretty long form interview um, that hit the Catholic press last week or maybe this week about uh, Pope Francis giving a long form interview with American magazine, and mm-hmm. one of the questions that America magazine asked was about um, the the view that certain Catholics have about the bishops conference here in the United States, and and the Pope's answer was actually very telling in that he said you know Jesus didn't make bishop conferences he made bishops. He made mm-hmm. pastors. He made pastors mm-hmm. who need to be involved and understand what their people need and what their people want. Mm-hmm. And if we spend all this time thinking about what the Bishop Conference is doing or whatnot, we're kind of, we're, we're on the side of that same spirit that maybe talks about involvement or attendance or, you know, number of people that went through the confirmation program. Who cares how many pe- people went through it? How many are walking out of it with a with a yes. relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, if yes. it's, you know, I'd rather have 10 that have that than a thousand who don't. So- yeah. It's, it's a little bit of the same spirit, I think, that you're that you're reflecting. I've never heard it put that way. Very insightful, and it's very true. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a practical dimension to it, to your point. Not enough labors. There's the practical reality of that. God gave us free will. He could flip a switch and make everybody be an insta-disciple, but he didn't. give us free will. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of uh, you know automation, um, we need people to actually say, yeah, I choose this. I choose to enter into a mm-hmm. relationship. And without that, from the laity, it's not going to happen.
0: Well, how long, how long does it take to get to know someone at a deep enough level where she shares that she had an abortion five years ago? And how long, how long did it take me as a youth minister to get to know the teenagers, uh, the teenage women well enough so that they would share with me that they were cutting themselves on their hip just so they could feel pain and, and, and Mm. know that they're alive. Uh, you know, how long did I have to talk to the the guy uh, before he told me that his his father beats him every night out of rage, and that he has to smoke pot every night to fall asleep? And is that okay? Mm. <laughs> you know, like these these are the existential struggles that Jesus saw in the crowd. Um, you know, they're different today, but they're fundamentally the same, and they're they're intensely private and embarrassing. And um, But when you have the opportunity to speak into it, uh, the Holy Spirit, I mean, so many times people would be sharing something with me, uh, and, and I, I had no idea how to respond. And I would just say to myself, come Holy Spirit. I know you have words for your beloved daughter right now, come Holy Spirit. Mm. And by the time she was done sharing with me, words came out of my mouth. And when I spoke in that spirit oftentimes they were salvific they were not of my own making and tears would run down that person's face you know this this is the call in the power of our baptism and our confirmation to move in that kind of power but it only happens in the places of intimate empathy and encounter with people Friendship. and we can't do it if we mm-hmm. keep getting ourselves all wrapped up in a cycle of involvement in our parish you know as soon as i Soon as I come alive from my retreat, what's the next thing? Well, father says, Hey, well, I'd love to get you more involved at the parish. What would you like to do? Here's a list of volunteer activities. Well, I'm alive with Jesus. You know, I've got good news to share with the world. And now all of a sudden I'm spending 10 hours a week helping with the church festival. You know, and the, the, you know, the church festival is fine. uh, But man, I, I, uh, that's, that's where the movement of the parish, it's fine. Vatican II says uh, in the decree on the laity, some lady will be called to an apostolate in the parish. Add intro. Great. The, the Lord has great plans for his church, and he wants to build up the church. And the pastor has a responsibility to help guide and lead people, you know, to the mission of the church. But the pastor has to have a, you know, we have a preferential option for the poor. Really, we need a preferential option for the world. We need a preferential option for the lost. Mm. And the pastor needs a preferential option to send people to the brokenness of the world. Amen. And if he, if he does that, then, then we're, oh man, the potential of the church. Uh, we will change the world. The Catholic Church is on every corner in this country. We will change the world. The Catholic Church is not on every corner in LA. But I mean, imagine all Ooh. these people streaming out of the churches with empathy and passion to get to know people's brokenness so that they can speak a timely word of of salvation to them. Uh, this is beautiful when, when it happens and we've been given all the graces for this mission. We've just never, they're all tied up in us. They haven't been loosed like uh, um, Father Constable Mesa says. Uh, you know, they haven't been let, they haven't been untied.
1: Yeah. We're holding them back. And in many cases Mm -hmm. for reasons that don't make a lot of logical sense, because the answer, I mean, which again, going back to the notion of friendship, the answers for these things are are relatively simple. And God as deep as he is, is simple. He's not complex, hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Like that's not his makeup. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have layers. Like he is eminently simple, even though he is the source of all profundity in the universe, right? So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and and the reality of it is something like, you know, relational instead of transactional, right? Friend instead of uh, adversary, educator, uh, you know, uh, whatever, apologist, right? Um, All of those things, like the answers are simple about how we can actually exercise that potential that we have and channel that fire that the Holy Spirit makes manifest in our souls is through this understanding of coming into communion with, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other, uh, God's other sons and daughters, which all of them are, even the one that you least like, uh, and, and, and really putting that to work and in the process being fed and formed and and grow from that, from that exchange. And Mm -hmm. I just think it's like, you know, maybe we'll take a page out of Nike's, uh, you know, playbook. We just do it. You know, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. just go and do it. um and uh, and and, you know, that is transformative when mm-hmm. it when it happens. Yeah. That is transformative when it happens, Jason. I know we're we're getting to the top of our hour. There's so much to discuss, but before we um you know get to our wait what segment, I did want to give you a chance to talk about uh, Evangelical Catholic and talk about the work, talk about how folks can you know, keep tabs on what you're doing, upcoming things. Because I think, like I said, what you guys are doing is really interesting. It's insightful. I think it's obviously very worthy of our time and place right now. Um, And I think um, it'd be great for folks to know more about it.
0: Sure. We, we partner with parishes, campus ministries, and um, a number of military installations, any, anywhere where where priests or pastoral leaders, deacons are called to their fundamental call is to form the lay people to be disciple makers in the world, mm. to fulfill the great commission. Um, everywhere that, that every body of Christ in the Catholic church is called to do that. Uh, and, and where there are pastors, deacons, pastoral leaders that have woken up to that call and have, have, Seen that the heresy of involvement is not producing renewal in their parish, and they want to they want to make disciples, they want to reach the darkness in their community. Anywhere there are pastoral leaders that wake up to that call, and then the next question is, well, how do I do this? How do I start launching my lay people into the community to make disciples? That's what we want to help with, and so we we come alongside parishes, campus ministries, to. Formulate a plan for that. We offer them formation materials, coaching every week as they form lay people to do that. And, um, and it's awesome. So, um, we, we try to turn, help them turn the imagination, uh, and the love of lay people to the world, uh, and, and keep them focused, what the church calls add extra, mm. keep them focused, add extra. And so that they're not turning inward on themselves, yeah. add intra. And blogging about the politics of the church and, and all obsessing about what the bishops are doing now. No, obsess about the burden of your neighbor, obsess about the state of your community, uh, look to wash the feet of, of people in the world. So you can bring the light of Jesus to darkness. And so we help, we help a here, start to launch a movement of outward facing lay people who are well-formed praying every day, sacramentally alive, uh, and and are are trained to ask good questions and share the gospel in a timely way.
1: How can people find out about you
0: specifically? Our website mm-hmm. is evangelicalcatholic.org and that's that's the best best way. There's all kinds of buttons on there to to contact us. Uh, we do have an upcoming uh, conference for priests and deacons. Um it's called Priests for the Apostolic Age. And, um, but we want deacons there as well, because oftentimes they work side by side. And, and so the more united they are in this apostolic vision, the stronger they can lead. Um, and so, uh, if you want to check that out, that's, um, on our website on, the on the menu is priest for an apostolic age. It's in Dallas, Texas, January 24th to 26th, 2023. It's going to be awesome. Beautiful. Just, just had another Bishop register yesterday.
1: Nice. We'll include that, yeah. uh, all that information, uh, in the show notes and, like I said, brother, I think this is a really, um, you know, really important uh, mission that you are leading, and super uh, important messages that you are espousing. And I think we need to all take those things to heart and um, and help make all of those messages kind of manifest in our in our communities in our time and place. So, our prayer for your continued uh, success of your and the prosperity of your ministry and your and, and the work that you're leading. And uh, really great privilege to have you
0: on the show. Thank you. It's great. great conversation. It was great.
1: Awesome. Are you ready to play? Wait, what, Jason? Sure. All right, let's do it. All right, Jason. So, question number one. We already discussed that you were once a member of the Assemblies of God. Among other things, that congregation emphasizes the manifestation of the Spirit in the everyday, in the present moment. Now, Jason, this Spanish Catholic saint from the 20th century, also emphasized the importance of the everyday present moment in his great apostolate, which in English translates to the work of God. Who was he?
0: St. Jose Maria Scriba.
1: All right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> nice work. Batten a thousand. Beautiful. All right. Question number oh, he two. He
0: talked about loving the world to evangelize the world.
1: That's right. That's right. Yep. He did. All right, Jason, I can imagine you're the right guy to ask this question. So which of these is false about your home state of Wisconsin? Uh Which is false about Wisconsin? Is it A, the term cheesehead originated as a term of endearment for a local Wisconsin politician whose farming-focused policies made him a darling to cattle farmers? Is it B... Marathon County in Wisconsin produces nearly all of the ginseng grown in the U.S. Or is it C, Soviet satellite Sputnik fell out of orbit in 1962 and a 20 pound piece of it crashed to the ground in Manitowoc, Wisconsin? Which of those is false? The cheese? A. And you are correct, my friend. Wow, I thought I'd get you on this one for sure. (laughs) The term cheese. Why B
0: is true? And I, I thought I'd heard something about C. About Sputnik, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and uh, you get extra credit because I tried to trick you a little bit on the first one. So that because the term cheesehead actually does have a weird sort of provenance. But it actually started, as I understand it, as a term German soldiers used to use to insult the Dutch during World War II. Oh, wow, so
0: interesting.
1: That's that's the the provenance. How it ended up being the moniker for a, a professional football team, I don't know. But but we'll have to. Chase that one down later.
0: I think people just started wearing cheese heads to games.
1: There you go. (laughs) All right, final question, and you're guaranteed to get this one right, so you're on your way to a perfect score here. Jason, you get to travel back in time to Rome in the year 312. Through a twist of fate, you find yourself in the gallery of a meeting of the Roman Senate headed by then-Emperor Constantine. Constantine is moments away from issuing his famous decree legalizing Christianity in the Roman Empire, a move that would help in the evangelization of millions. You're there when Constantine makes his proclamation and both the cheers and consternation from the senators is obvious. There is tension in the air. The meeting closes and Constantine is ushered from the chamber. As he passes you, you have an opportunity to say something to him. What, if anything, do you say?
0: We got to invest heavily in the formation of people in this empire to actually live out the tremendous call of Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to undercut the power of this faith.
1: Nice. And in a pinch, you could just say thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, i thought you were gonna ask if i would reverse it and i wouldn't
1: no of course not yeah that was a pretty good move you know even uh mm-hmm. even a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then so you know, that was uh that worked out well awesome batted a thousand good job it's a rarity on this show so uh excellent uh excellent job and uh once again jason thanks uh thanks for stopping by really appreciate
0: it great to be with you deacon charlie thanks for the time look and forward it, to meeting you in person.
1: Amen. And if you are listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. Share this episode with somebody. It's got a lot of really powerful insights and they can help people. So remember to do that. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.